This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, the super typhoon may be gone, but Guam's residents are coming to terms with the destruction left behind. People have waited in line, some for over six hours, to get gas. And um, the lines are wrapped around, you know, the streets. We have police monitoring it. We also head to New Caledonia, where another fatal shark attack has authorities questioning what to do. And after more than 150 years locked away in museums and universities, the remains of Maori people are on their way home from Europe. It's really heartwarming for us to have our ancestors come home. Our people, for various reasons, they were poked and prodded and studied and traded as if they were an item. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, for the first time, South Korea has hosted a summit with Pacific leaders and what its president says marks a new beginning of cooperation between Korea and the region. Yoon Sokyo welcomed leaders from several Pacific nations yesterday with talks on climate change, fisheries and with Japan's plans to release treated nuclear waste water into the Pacific expected to continue today. To find out more about what South Korea's interests in the region are, we're joined by Duncan. Lee, a PhD candidate at the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at ANU and a former Korean Naval Intelligence Officer. Uh, Dongan, uh, welcome to the show. Hello, it's good to talk to you. Um, so can you tell us why might South Korea be hosting this summit? What interest do, does Korea have in, in the Pacific region? Okay, so there will be four key interests that I can tell about, but let me start with first two things. Mm -hmm. The first one is the 2030 World Expo. So South Korea is competing on hosting the World Expo coming in 2030. And actually, 11 member states are, uh, 11 member states of PIF out of 18 are the member states who can make a vote on the, who is hosting the expo. Oh. So for South Korea, Compared to the competing country, which is Saudi Arabia, uh, South Pacific is one of the friendly countries towards South Korea. Okay. The reason is Saudi Arabia has no embassy in this region, but South Korea already has two. So in understanding that, South Korea already has some ties. So for them, for Expo, those countries are the good countries to persuade for them. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, so the South, uh, this, this World Expo, um, South Korea is hoping to, to have. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned that there were other reasons as well. I wonder if one of them is, is geopolitics and uh, politics in the region. Is South Korea interested in sort of ramping up, um, its interest in the region as a result of other forces like China increasing its influence? Uh, yeah, of course. So th- we should understand this is not only about South Korean interests, but this should be understood as broader interest of the South Korea and its alliances, including the United States, obviously. So one of the examples would be Biden recently didn't come to this region. And I feel like South Korea is trying to be a more reasonable stakeholder in the, the, in the rules-based international order. And I feel like South Korea is trying to help out some of the strategies of its partners, including Australia and the United States. 
Mm. Uh, yeah, but because it, South Korea does align with the United States and, and Australia. It is a close ally of both countries. It, does that therefore make it, um, I guess, in, in conflict with China, particularly when we talk about these these great world powers, you know, jostling for, for interest in the Pacific? Well, what side does Korea stand on? So that is the largest differences between the last administration and the current administration. So when South Korea, well, currently we are on the right wing president and last one was the left wing president. Normally, when the left-wing presidents take the presidency, they tend to give a more focus on engagement with North Korea, which means that they try to not to uh, harshly deter North Korea and try not to kind of demonstrate their their weapons and military alliance with the United States. Mm -hmm. However, when the right-wing party takes the the presidency, South Korea tends to try, try to deter North Korea and then it tries to seek its support from its allies, I mean, the democratic allies such as Australia or the United States. So in exchange for that, South Korea needs to do something in a broader region. And I believe that the South Pacific would be one of the things that South Korea is trying to fill the gap out. Oh, interesting. And and as you mentioned, it's so it's a right wing president that might want to show its its, I guess, aggression or show its defense in face of North Korea that exists now. Is that right? Yes. Interesting. Um. So what what existing relationship does South Korea have with the Pacific, you know, as it looks to ramp things up? Does it or are there already ties, perhaps economic ties, even even migration ties between the, between South Korea and the and the region? To be honest, South Korean tie with the region is very weak, very weak. And this is, as we know, this is the first time ever that South Korea hosted a summit. Mm. But South Korea is still putting on its investment in the region, you know, the ODA official development assistance. And except for that, South Korea also interested in the fishery industry in the region. Is South Korea imports fish, uh, imports the seafood a lot, including tuna and mackerel from this region. So is that the sort of stuff that um, South Korea might be bringing to the table when they meet um, with with Pacific leaders this week? Um, Things like strengthening perhaps fishery trade between the region and South Korea. Do you have any inkling of what else South Korea might be bringing to the table? So the... As you know, summit was already there yesterday, and there was already a joint su- statement. So, joint statement was not released in English yet, but it's released in Korea already, Korean oh. already. And one of the key thing that is be very interesting thing is the nuclear treated water from Fukushima mm-hmm. and impacts on that. Actually, the South Korea is on the side to support Japan's decision on releasing the water right now. It doesn't. The, it doesn't you, support. Did you say, uh, Dongan? Uh, it supports. It supports. Okay, so that that could be a p- potential cause of conflict between the Pacific and and South Korea. Yes. The so the Pacific leaders, uh, in my opinion, they wanted South Korea to support their ideas, which is not to support the Japanese decision on the table as a middle power in the region. However, South Korea didn't do so. Very, very interesting um, to see that uh, see that happen. Um, what, what? Because I guess South Korea is quite close to the Pacific Ocean itself. Um, do you know what what it was weighing up when it when it decided? Does it, does it have close ties with Japan? Yeah. So they actually, South Korea was not close to Japan 
pre- previously. However, the current government is trying to increase the tie with Japan, and that is related to its policy towards North Korea. As I said, rival party preferred harsh policy towards North Korea, which means that it needs more partners in the region. In terms of that, South Korea needs to increase its relationship, and Fukushima water release is one of the things that South Korea would like to have a deal with. However, in the joint statement, South Korea, I think it tried to maintain the neutrality between the Pacific Island countries and Japan. So South Korea didn't clarify whether it is supporting the the Japanese decision or Pacific Island decision. Rather than it said. We would like to emphasize the importance of a uh, clear Pacific Ocean, not polluted by the radioactive materials. Mm, very interesting. So, I guess some diplomatic speech, uh, speech there in that release. Yeah, and also that is all related to South Korean a nuclear power plant as well. So, South Korea is one of the countries that is developing its energy with nuclear power plant as well. Ah, interesting. So there are some further parallels there. Um, if you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat this Tuesday morning, we're speaking with Dungan Lee, a PhD candidate at the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at ANU. And we're talking about this recent, uh, Korean Pacific, South Korean Pacific Leader Summit that, um, kicked off yesterday in Seoul, in South Korea. Um, and we're talking about what Korean interests might be in the Pacific and vice versa, what Pacific interests might, might, might there be in, in strengthening South Korean relations with the region. Um, now, when we talk about Pacific interests, uh, it's very hard to look beyond climate change, which is considered a priority for the region. What, what's South Korea's, um, you know, legacy and, and um, approach towards climate change? Do you see any parallels with its approach and, and the Pacific's approach? So that is also related to the water release from Fukushima, I believe. Mm. South Korea counts as a nuclear power plant as one of the sustainable development. So South as nuclear power plant uh, releases lesser greenhouse gases, it can be counted as environmental decision making from South Korean perspective. Right. Okay. So, so it's saying it's it's working towards a green fu- future by embracing nuclear energy. I mean, is is that the point? Does it see nuclear energy as the main way moving forward, or does it have other renewable um, energies that it's looking at, like wind or solar? So, the possibility of using wind and solar is very poor in South Korea because of its geographical features. So South Korea doesn't really have great environment to make the wind or solar or hydrogen uh, type of development. And South Korea already has a long history of developing with its nuclear powers. So I believe that South Korea, from practical side, it is reasonable for South Korea to continue this way of development. Mm, very interesting. Now, um, Dongan, we understand that talks will continue today um, between Pacific leaders and South Korean uh, diplomats. What, what do you expect to be the outcome of these talks looking forward? Can we see greater engagement? And what might that greater engagement be between South Korea and, and the Pacific region? I think there has been already one very important announcement made by South Korean government, which was South Korea will double its assistance towards the region. Oh, right. So that, that is quite so, interesting. So about that. Uh, to be honest, South Korean investment in the region was very marginal. So on, as of 2021, half of South Korean aid went to 
the ASEAN or Southeast Asian region. And only 1% of the its assistant went through the Pacific region. So even though it says that it's going to double this up, it means that it's going to only put 2% of, of its overseas development aid. And what does that say to you, Dongen? Does that suggest that perhaps the Pacific still isn't quite a priority for South Korea despite this first summit happening? I would, uh, I'm afraid to say this, but I would say yes. So still the priority for South Korea, I would say, is on the Asian region. However, this is still important because it opened the possibility that there would be some more opportunities between the two regions. Yes, indeed. And we will see, I guess, as, as the years go by, if the, perhaps there's a second summit and, and what that might bring uh, for the Pacific region as well. Uh, Dongan, thank you so much for your time this morning on, on Pacific Beat. It was um, fascinating to get your insights on this development. No worries at all. Thank you very much. And that was Dungan Lee, a PhD candidate at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. And we were talking about that first ever summit between South Korea and Pacific leaders. It happened, it, well, it kicked off in Seoul yesterday and we expect it to continue again today. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Monday, oh, not Monday, Tuesday morning, my mistake. The island of Guam is starting to recover from the devastation of Super Typhoon Mawa, but there are still tough times ahead for many. Officials from FEMA, the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, have arrived on the island to start their damage assessments. Right now, Joan Agin Achafouros, news director at KUAM News, says fewer than one in five people on Guam have power and safe drinking water is in short supply. And she says there is chaos at petrol stations across the island. For the past three days, people have waited in line, some for over six hours, to get gas. And um, the lines are wrapped around, you know, streets. And we have the police monitoring it. We even have police officers escorting the fuel tankers to the gas stations. It's pretty crazy. I think it's just because we haven't had a typhoon in so long, some people got complacent. So that's kind of where we're at right now. A lot of the high schools were supposed to be graduating in the next two weeks. Those have been postponed for the time being because a lot of the schools are damaged. And a lot of things have just been cancelled as a result of the typhoon. That issue with people queuing for gas, you say up to six hours. I presume they're doing that because there is a fear that the island could run out. Is that a possibility? We don't know where the fear of gas running out on island came about. But even days before the typhoon, there was constant reminders of people to fill up, especially if they have generators, make sure they have the diesel. And and we don't know where all of these vehicles have come from. These are people that should have had their tanks full prior to the typhoon. So what I think people are doing, because if you pass by the line, you'll see people with containers. So I'm thinking it's kind of like I'm pretty sure Australia had experience to the toilet paper shortage where people were, were buying because they had this fear that it would run out. So I feel it's kind of similar to that. And it's incredible how long the lines are. We have drone shots and it just wraps around street after street. And the fact that people would be willing to wait with their kids in the car for six hours just to get a full tank of gas. It's the same with like the restaurants that managed to open the line for McDonald's stretches 
you know, just for, just for a burger, but um, people are just wanting a hot meal because there's no power at their house. So how is this situation impacting on the tourists that are still on the island? I gather there are around 6,000 or so who are said to be, for want of a better word, stranded, uh, around about half that number f- from Korea. How are they managing? So right now we have the Guam Visitors Bureau um, assisting and we have, of course, um, translators that are able to assist with that, especially with the Korean visitors that are here. The airport opened, so flights are going to start slowly heading out and the hotels that they're staying at, they're just trying to accommodate the tourists as much as possible. I'm sure they weren't expecting this when they came here, but Guam Visitors Bureau is doing a great job in assisting the the tourists. And of course, Guam is uh, well known for the sizable US military presence. They must have been affected by the typhoon too. Is there any suggestion with Federal Emergency Management Agency officials there and also I understand US Navy vessels on standby to, mm-hmm. to assist that the military might get preferential treatment in some way? Are people concerned about that? I do believe that there are some uh, island residents that will feel that they will get treatment. Um, I know Anderson Air Force Base, which is at the northern tip of the island, which was the area that was hit the hardest, did sustain a significant amount of damage. But it wasn't only until maybe like a couple of days after where we actually saw you know, photos of just how bad the damage was. The thing is, the information that we're getting out from Anderson is very limited. And we do know that they are, you know, working along with the governor and the lieutenant governor and the FEMA officials to to kind of assess what assistance they may need. As for U.S. vessels, they're just pending, I guess, um, like the green light to come in and assist us. I believe it was the USS Nimitz that's pending to come here to assist, and we're just waiting for word for that to happen. But as things stand, a significant percentage of the population of Guam are going to be doing it tough for quite a while by the sound of it. I think because we haven't had a typhoon of this magnitude in a while, there's a lot that lost their homes. If you drive through the villages, there's still a lot of houses that have vegetation in the area. And it's only because there's so many that need assistance. And it's just a matter of time of the mayor getting there to assist them with clearing like the debris and clearing the vegetation. That was Joan Agin Traforis, a news director at KUAM News on Guam, and she was speaking there to reporter Richard Hewitt. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. There's been another deadly shark attack in New Caledonia, the second in just a few months. Local reports say a 42-year-old man who was spearfishing near the islet of Tuani in the French territory's north died after being bitten several times. And of course, last month, Australian tourist Chris Davis died after being bitten by a shark off a popular beach in capital Noumea. There have been two other non-fatal shark attacks around Noumea this year, prompting local authorities to, chose, to choose to clue, close the beaches to swimming. Joining us now to discuss the latest incident is Claude Mayu, an expert on shark attacks at the University of New Caledonia. Uh, bonjour, Claude, and uh, welcome to Pacific Beat. Good morning, Prayanka. Um, How are you? I'm very well, but uh, yeah, it's it's sad to be speaking about something so tragic uh, after the death of this yeah. person. Uh, can do we know any details about this latest attack? What what species of shark was involved, for instance, and and what led up to the attack? 
Okay, uh, the case is under justice investigation, so I am not allowed to talk about uh, that point, that you summarize the attack uh, accurately. Okay, yeah, so it is still under investigation. Um, but can you tell us a bit, I guess what we do know is that this person was spearfishing near this islet of, of Tuani. Um, are, are there, is it common to see sharks in that area to the north of, of the country, I understand? All right. Uh, we have sharks all around the islands. Uh, so sharks are not uh, uncommon in, in Pum. Uh, in Pum, um, we are running a database here about shark attacks in New Caledonia. And this is the fifth attack uh, we have recorded here. Uh, we already had four attacks, two littles in the Pum area. Okay. Since the first one, the first record was in uh, 1958, if I remember well. Right. Okay. So, uh, Apum being the being the northern area where this uh, attack happened. So, it isn't uncommon. But I mean, I, I, we're hearing that um, more broadly across New Caledonia, there's been, you know, four attacks in, in I believe, just as many months since the beginning of this year. Two of them have been deadly, as I mentioned. Is that unusual yeah. if, if the incidence of sharks in, in the bays aren't? Well, uh, since the beginning of this century, uh, we had an increase uh, in shark attacks in New Caledonia and unfortunately in the, an increase in, uh, in lethal attacks. Uh, well, uh, on those last years, unfortunately, having several attacks in the same year is not is not unusual. It's becoming uh, usual in New Caledonia. Oh, interesting. So it's not unusual, um, you say. Um, no, it's not unusual. And it's not unusual having shark attacks all around the island because are, we have two uh, species very dangerous for men, which is tiger shark and bull shark. And they both we can find all around the islands in New Caledonia. Interesting, because I, I guess um, as an outside um, perspective, from an outside perspective, it does look like things are becoming more frequent with four shark attacks and, and the authorities responding in quite a severe case, in quite a severe way, which we will get to. Um, you said things might be increasing, though. Is that is that right? What could be causing an increase in, in shark, shark attacks in New Caledonia? What could go is we don't know. Is is something we are asking a lot of questions and we have very few answers. All what I can give to you is uh, recons. Um, we proved that it was a, a, a double fold. If you compare the last twenty years of the twentieth century and the first twenty years of the twenty-one century, uh, it, it's it's doubled. So we don't know what exactly is happening, but you have to consider that shark attacks are slightly uh, increasing all over the world. Okay, so this is perhaps not not a New Caledonia problem, but something that we're seeing across the world. It, yes, it is a New Caledonian problem because I'm sorry to say, but uh, uh, New Caledonia is a hotspot for shark attacks, unfortunately, because. Uh, we are mo we recorded more than uh, than uh, seventy attacks at at, the, at this time, 
Uh, it's the 14th lethal attack, uh, which happened a couple of days, and we have a, a very small population, uh, to 2,700,000 uh, uh, people. Mm, so, so it's not a lot. Yeah, so 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 I guess compared to the population, the number of shark attacks are, are quite are quite high. Um, but it sounds like you're saying that it's just sort of a peculiarity. It's something unique to New Caledonia, simply because of the number of shark attacks, uh, sharks in the area. So, is, is there anything that could have been done to prevent the, these these attacks? Then, well, shark prevention is well, it's a big deal. Um, I think no. Uh, People should be aware of the risk. Uh, uh, Spearfishing is a risky activity considering shark attacks. Mm. And now uh, the the authorities are uh, ready to put some nets uh, along some beaches. And the result of killing, unfortunately, because it's it's, uh, it's not something which should work very well and it has a lot of impact. Uh, on the fauna. Uh, so the, the truth is we are still seeking what is happening. And uh, prevention is a matter of public uh, policies and it's uh, a matter of uh, personal uh, behaviors too. Mm, interesting. Um, why well, you mentioned there that spearfishing is spearfishing? Sorry, is very risky when it comes to um, shark yeah, attacks. Yeah, of course. Why is that? Oh, it's is that the international shark attack file would quote as uh, a provoked attack because it's uh, is uh, well known that uh, vibes and blood uh, coming from the fish is highly attractive for sharks and especially for some dangerous sharks uh, such as tiger or bull shark mm. or great white. Um, if you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat, we're speaking with Claude Maillot. He's an expert on shark attacks from the University of New Caledonia. And we're chatting in light of, a, of another fatal shark attack um, that uh, struck off of the northern um, area of Poom near the islet of Tuini. Um, now, Claude, you mentioned there that you were disappointed to see the shark culling happening as a result of these attacks by authorities. I mean, and the, the pictures themselves are quite striking of... of um, I've seen some some of these, you know, bloodied shark bodies being put mm-hmm. in what seems like landfill or something. Quite a, quite a number of them as well. I, I last I heard, I think it was um, almost forty, uh, more than forty that have been killed so far. Um, why? Oh, um, I think the, the, the real recon is around uh, two hundred. Oh gosh, two hundred mm, from from the beginning of this year. Yeah, it's huge. That, that is huge. massive. I, I, I don't uh, first this has impact. We don't know exactly what, but it's, it may have huge impacts. And on the, on the other hand, I'm not sure it will it will work because uh, you take uh, out you take a lot of sharks out of the water in one peculiar place is is down around Numea that we are in a very very wide. Uh, uh, archipelago mm-hmm. and connected with other islands and some other sharks may be recruited from uh, other areas. So I think this is this will be endless 
any shark caught might be replaced by another shark coming from the neighborhood. Oh, interesting. Is that because once you reduce the population in one area, it means that fish populations can grow, therefore attra- attracting other other sharks in the area? Is that is that sort of how it works? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. From from other areas, uh, as an example, there was a study uh, run in Norfolk, okay, mm-hmm. and they tagged some tiger sharks and some other tiger sharks tagged in Norfolk. They were found in New Caledonia, in South New Caledonia. So that means the recruitment of, of uh, the, the individuals is not in a small area, it's a very wide area. So we can, you can catch as much shark as you want, they will be replaced. Yeah, Norfolk being, you know, in the UK, so, so very, very, very long away from, from the Pacific waters. Um, Absolutely. Um, I mean, it sounds like you say shark culling is not the best idea. It can, you know, disrupt the ecology, the marine life there, and also might not solve the problem of getting rid of sharks in New Caledonia's waters. Another tactic that the uh, government there has employed is is banning people from swimming in beaches. It's been very controversial, as we've reported here on Pacific Beat. What, what do you think about that measure, Cloud? I think it is a very short-term measure. Uh, it doesn't fix anything, never. Mm. Uh, so I hope we should have some protected areas to swim in, what means maybe uh, shark berries, uh, what means uh, drone survey, which works, I, I've been told it works uh, properly in Australia. Mm. Uh, so it, it, it should be tried here. That uh, is not a priority, as I, as far as I, I've been told. Now, it's interesting you say that. You're not the first, I guess, shark expert to be on our show, Cloud, to, um, you know, I guess, criticize not only the shark call, but also these um, bans on swimming at beaches in, in New Caledonia, or Numia at least, in the capital. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like authorities in New Caledonia are listening to experts like yourself? No, <laughs> no. Uh, I've been critical about uh, shark killings from the very first steps, so uh, I'm not heard here. Uh, and do you think, I mean, how do you feel about that, considering the authorities are taking quite a strict stance, the the public are, you know, mixed on, on their response to it? Um, yeah, I, are you disappointed? Yeah, of course, I'm disappointed. There is nothing to do about that. Politics are politics. They do what they want. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it's, if it's, yes, yes, go on. No, no, no. There is nothing we can we can do. We you give power to somebody, use it. Yes. It, well, Cloud, and then I'll I'll leave you this, with this question: If you had the power, if you were in government in New Caledonia. What what do you think would be the best repro- approach in light of these shark attacks uh, across the country? Or probably a mix a mix of several measures. Uh, um, I would base the politic on on wide uh, areas surveyed uh, with uh, drones and uh, um, IA. Uh, recognizing uh, the patterns of the sharks in the water and, and sending alarms mm. to, to people. Um, that's the first step. Uh, some closed areas like shark berries, yeah, why not? I would go further in the test 
of the electric devices and probably uh, promoting the use uh, of electric uh, uh, of shock deterrence, mm. uh, we, which works uh, if you wear it, uh, and mm. as less shocking as possible, of course. Yes. Okay. Well. Let's hope some, some authorities there in, in New Caledonia are listening, Cloud. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks to you. Have a good day. You too. Uh, that is Cloud Mayo, an expert on shark attacks at the University of New Caledonia. And we are we were talking, of course, about the spate of shark attacks, two of them deadly um, being reported just in this last year. It's that time of the morning where we take a look at the headlines across the region. And joining us this morning is Pacific Beat producer Evan Wusuka. Good morning, Evan. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, now let's start off with a bit of Vanuatu politics, Evan. Um, there's been uh, uh, there's been that unsuccessful motion of no confidence against uh, Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakal there. And now something else has happened. What's the latest there? That's right, Priyanka. We had that attempt by the opposition to oust uh, Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau just the other week. Uh, there was an unsuccessful motion of no confidence, uh, which, which in itself was a bit curious given that uh, there was such a low number of opposition MPs compared to government MPs. Um, well, the report from the Vanuatu Daily Post, uh, it appears that heads are rolling after that unsuccessful move. Mm. The Daily Post is reporting that Sato Kilman, he was the deputy prime minister, well, he's been removed from office but, and has been replaced by Jotham Napat, who mm. is the foreign minister. Now, the Daily Post didn't explain, didn't give, um, well, Prime Minister Kalasakao didn't tell the Daily Post about why this move was done. All he said that was that this was for the stability of the government. Mm. Now, it's all up there, but the Daily Post in its uh, report was saying that uh, Sato Kilman was a, a bit of a political power play, uh, player. He was quite crucial in the formation of the Vanuatu government and that, that there was a group of uh, MPs um, who were trying to oust him. Uh, so there's a lot of still very murky reasons, yes. but uh, uh, the deputy prime minister is gone uh, just straight after that unsuccessful uh, motion of no confidence. So really interesting times in Vanuatu politics. Yes, I guess you, 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 you're forced to read into that, um, that quote from the Prime Minister saying that it was the stability of the government, which is why he, he got rid of the Deputy Prime Minister. Um, well, coming off the, off the back of that, um, of that, uh, you know, uh, attempted vote of no confidence. I guess we can draw our own conclusions as, as what that might be. Yep, a lot of connecting the dots there. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, now let's head to a long-running case of football corruption involving FIFA and the Oceania Football Confederation. Um, what's the latest there? And can you give us a, a background in, in this case, Evan? Yeah, so Priyanka, this is, a, like you said, a long-running uh, case that goes back to uh, right to the tops of the FIFA, uh, uh, FIFA leadership. Mm. And it's almost more than a decade old. And this one involves one of the Pacific region's most powerful football figures. Now, he was a former FIFA vice president. Uh, this is Reynald uh, Temari from French Polynesia. Now, this this case goes all the way back more than a decade, like I was saying. <laughs> so Radio New Zealand is reporting that there's been uh, a new development in this case and that uh, French prosecutors have um, 
charged uh, Mr. Temari with uh, passive corruption. Now, this is in connection with the bid by Qatar to host uh, last year's World Cup. Uh, so it's, it's quite a oh, complicated case. Yeah, yeah. so um, Temaru, Temari, he was a former uh, OFC, that's the Oceania Football Confederation president. Um, he had been, um, uh, he's, he, in his response to this latest development, he's kind of dismissed it. He's saying that French prosecutors, it's a non-event, uh, adding he's, he's maintained his position that there was nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong to do with this. Um, yeah, but looking back on this case, in 2010, he was stepped down. He stepped down as a member of FIFA. He and another OFC executive, uh, Tongas Ahongalangu uh, Fusi Malohi, they were alleged to be involved in a vote-buying scheme. Uh, then in 2014, oh he was also banned by FIFA from football for about eight years. Oh, dear. Yeah, so it's a, it's a long, complicated saga more than a decade old, and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. Yes, indeed. And there has been a lot of, um, I guess, scrutiny placed on FIFA leadership and, and OFC leadership for that matter. Um, and I guess this is just one more story adding to that, uh, which strikes, I guess, a bit closer to home with those um, Pacific um, island leaders involved as well in this. Uh, very, very interesting now let's head to Solomon Islands, Evan. Um, now we've reported for a long time here on Pacific Beat about the problem of uh, unexploded bombs and munitions that have been left across the country from, from the Second World War. And it continues to be a problem there. Uh, there's been deaths over the past couple of years, quite quite tragic ones with people not realizing that they've, you know, made a picnic on, on an unexploded bomb and it goes off and, you know, strategy ensues. But now the government is taking new steps to deal with the problem. What are those steps? Yes, Priyanka, like, as you said, it's been a big problem in the Solomon Islands. Um, but, so this is a small step, but probably a, quite a significant one in the long run. So the government is teaming up with private companies and um, who have been involved with detecting unexploded bombs. So the Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation is reporting that the permanent secretary in the Ministry of Police, Karen Galokale has met with these companies and the police to try and figure out how they can work together to deal with this crisis uh, of unexploded bombs and ordinances. Now, all these companies already, they're working with uh, for developers and like before there's a construction project, these companies come in and they do their own uh, surveying to try and figure out if there are unexploded bombs underneath these areas. So um, they've come together and they're, they're teaming up with the police. Um, and there's also uh, that meeting involved the Geneva International Center for Humanitarian uh, Demining. And it also involves this other new group. It's called the Halo Trust. Now, this uh, project is run b- by, um, by this organization, which is funded by the U.S. Department of State. And it's part of this uh, big major project to... Uh, help Solomon Islands deal with these unexploded ordinances, which have been there for more than 80 years and continue to be a, a problem for developing the area. And also it's a threat to life, especially mm-hmm. when it involves uh, people and uh, uh, who uh, accidentally wander into these areas or somehow trigger these uh, unexploded ordinances. Yeah, very interesting. I guess we we will see if this um, new strategy, working with um, commercial companies, um, might might change things and and I guess expedite the removal of these unexploded ordinances. Um, yes, we'll we'll keep we'll keep you updated, listeners uh, here on Pacific Beat on that. Uh, thank you, Evan, for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Evan Wasuka bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. 
listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. More than 100 Maori and Moriori, Moriori, sorry, remains looted or traded during colonial times are on their way home from Germany to Aotearoa, New Zealand. The remains have been stored in seven different German institutions for more than a century, and a Kiwi delegation is visiting each one to collect them and conduct repatriation ceremonies. Dubrovka Volodar with more. After more than 150 years, Māori and Moriroi remains will finally be brought home. At a public ceremony in Leipzig, some tens of thousands of kilometres from their home, 64 ancestral remains were returned to the hands of Māori and Moriroi delegates. Craig John Hawke, New Zealand's ambassador to Germany, attended the ceremony. As we prepare... Tupuna, Karapuna and Taonga who have waited many, many years and will now travel the long miles to return home. It is incredible to think that over 150 years ago these incredible Taonga travelled by ships from the shores of Aotearoa to be traded here in Europe. Signing took place as part of the official handover. In the Pacific spirit of sharing, the delegation handed over a book to the hosts. At the end of the day, our matauranga, our knowledge, is important to us. Instead of having our ancestors, we want to give you a book of that knowledge. For us, that is a far better thing to do. The handing over marks the end of a long and unjust history that led them to the other side of the world. These ceremonies that we have are part of that recognition of that history, but also they allow for reconciliation, um, restitution um, to take place. Te here kie kie herewini is in Germany as the head of repatriation at the Te Papa Museum in New Zealand. It's for us to contribute to that conversation and to highlight what repatriation means to us as Indigenous people and the importance of repatriation and the importance of our ancestors coming home as part of that healing process. Hana Maraea Solomon, who is a trustee for the Hokotehi Moriroi Trust, explains the importance of the process. It's really heartwarming for us to have our ancestors come home. Our people, for various reasons, they were poked and prodded and studied and traded as if they were an item. And that that whole concept is so crazy to me. I, I, I struggle to be able to put it into words. So the fact that now, you know, our ancestors' bones will be able to come home, it's a bit of a big deal. The 64 remains were part of a bigger collection of more than 3,000 skulls and skeletons held in ethnological museums in the state of Saxony in Germany. Leontine Meyer van Mensch is the director of those museums. As a director, I would like to speak about persons instead of, of human remains. came to the museum 
between 1870 and 1905. They come from grave lootings as well as uh, from victims of violent conflicts. What I can only say as director of a museum is I'm so sorry. I apologize institutionally, but also as a human being for um, all the things that happened to their ancestors. Those involved did not just take remains from New Zealand. They also took them from other Pacific countries. You could actually reverse the question and, and ask from which indigenous group we don't have uh, human remains from. Te Herekiekiehereweni and the delegation are also visiting five other cities in Germany that also have Maori and Moriroi remains. One of them is the city of Göttingen, where a handover ceremony of about 30 remains will be held at the university later this week. The leader of the repatriation project at the university, ethnologist Dr. Regina Bendix, says it's part of a renewed focus to recognize the country's colonial past. The goal is to, to put it concisely, is to turn human remains that had been treated like things back into individuals. Göttingen University has two collections of about 2,000 human remains, many from the Pacific region. Dr. Bendix says many of the remains were used in race research, an outdated and now condemned practice. With artifacts, they were numbered. There were often things written directly on the skull. Um, there were archival cards made for them but pulling them out to do more research with them. During World War II, staff moved the remains to safe places to protect them from the bombing. They were later taken to storage rooms in Göttingen and kept there on shelves for decades. It looks like a library, I would say, a lot of shelving. You know, they also have other remains there, and then there are the shelves where the skulls are, together with the what remains of the archival material, these, uh, these index cards that in part were saved, told you some of it, burned during the Second World War, but not the human remains themselves sur survived. It took endless of hours of work to find out the origin of many of the remains. As part of that process, the university invited researchers from Pacific countries, including New Zealand, to support that work. Tehere says he's since made some shocking discoveries. I was actually able to connect those ancestors through investigating the writing on the ancestors that the person that actually had done the writing was um, Sir James Hector, who was the director of the Colonial Museum in Wellington from 1865 to the early 1900s. That was quite astonishing. That was quite a shock. That Colonial Museum is the predecessor to the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongariwa. So it actually confirms my earlier words around the colonisation process and how our colonial museums were part of the, the looting, the trading and the exporting of our ancestors overseas. Dr Bendix says the project has meant a lot of soul-searching for those involved. We are ourselves sometimes not sufficiently aware of what enormous weight there is in having human remains, seeking to return them, how we bestow the burden 
that we experience is in, in having them upon the shoulders of people elsewhere also. The more than 100 remains will all be taken on a journey across the world to bring them home in the coming weeks. In mid-June, a porfiri or welcome ceremony will take place in New Zealand before they will be given a resting place. are sounds from the repatriation ceremony in Leipzig, Germany. And that was ending that report by Dubrovka Volodair. And that just about brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for your Tuesday morning. To remind you of our top stories from today, a first-of-its-kind summit between South Korea and Pacific leaders is taking place at the moment in Seoul. Korea has already announced it will double aid to the region, but that might sound more significant than it actually is. Half of South Korean aid went to the Southeast Asian region. And only 1% of the assistance went through the Pacific region. So even though it says that it's going to double this up, it means that it's going to only put 2% of, of its overseas development aid. Also on today's show in New Caledonia, authorities are puzzled by the growing number of shark attacks. But one shark expert doesn't believe culling the sharks is the right approach to deal with the attacks. I think the real recon is around 200 from the beginning of this year. It may have huge impacts. This will be endless. Any shark caught might be replaced by another shark. If you want to uh, listen more in depth to any of those stories, you can head to our ABC Pacific website. Just uh, type ABC Pacific into your search engine and it'll take you there. Uh, there you can uh, not only listen to those two stories that we had earlier on the show, but also recap any of our episodes, any of our stories from uh, across many, many years. And you can also take a look at some of our other offerings at Radio Australia, including Nisha Daily, which is up next for its second episode. You might even hear my voice during, during that uh, episode today. I'll be back at the same time, same place tomorrow morning. Until then, have a lovely day.